0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.
2: Greetings and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. Or if you download the Radio Player Canada app anywhere across the country, if you type in ELMNTFM 106.5 or 95.7 ELMNTFM and just follow the links, you can listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, right across the country. It's my pleasure to welcome our first guest to the show today. Uh, Rick Hill is from Six Nations. He is Tuscarora, and he's an artist. He's a writer, he's a curator, and he lives in the community of Six Nations in the Grand River Territory. And uh, I've known him for quite a while over the years but uh, Rick has served as the manager of the Indian arts center in Ottawa. He's been the director of the museum at the Institute of American arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico, as well as the assistant director of public programs at the national museum of the American Indian, the Smithsonian institution and manager of the Haudenosaunee resource center on six nations. I also worked with him, uh, with the six nations legacy consortium, specifically dealing with the war of 1812 and the 200 year anniversary. Rick has a wicked sense of humor, which might come up during this interview, and it's a pleasure to have him here on the show. Today, Rick, though, Rick wanted to talk about the history of protests, and we're going to get into that. But before we do, uh, I really don't know enough about Rick, even though I've known him for a while. So, uh, Rick, it's a pleasure to have you here. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself?
3: Yes, I'm happy to be here. Well, I'd like to say that I'm a... Um... A member uh, of a bicultural family, meaning my dad was a Mohawk here from Grand River. Mm. My mother was a Tuscarora from New York. And even though we're one people, the Haudenosaunee, they're very different. Mm. Tuscarora is a very small community of uh, about 1,500 people. Grand River is one of the largest communities. Every day I can see somebody new here I never saw before in my life. At Tuscora. you know everybody. They know all your business. They know things about you that you don't even know sometimes. <laughs> so so it was interesting kind of growing up like a ping-pong ball between the two. And I'm a uh, member of the uh, Beaver Clan. When I was young, that didn't really mean anything to me because we moved away and I lived in a place called Grand Island in the middle of the Niagara River. Mm. And it wasn't until I became a young man that uh, suddenly this stuff seemed to be more important to me. So I sought out my uh, clan mother at Tuscarora. She didn't really know me, but, you know, once you explain who your grandmother is and who your mother is, and then they connect the dots. They says, oh, yes, now I know you. And she didn't really know me, but she mm. knew who I, who mm. I was uh, from, mm. and uh, she gave me my uh, Tuscarora name, which was Jutnagea, which means a cute beaver. Mm. No, it just means a young, <laughs> it just means a small beaver. but I throw in the cute thing because it, it used to help me catch other beavers. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so as I said, folks, there's that sense of humor I was talking about, which I mentioned would pop up through the conversation. Uh, you now, Rick, what first, what line of work did you first get into when you started to get more familiar with both sides of the border and uh, getting yourself established, say, uh, here in Six Nations?
3: Well, my dad was an iron worker. He mm-hmm. left his community when he was quite young. Went to the Buffalo. And uh, we grew up thinking, me and my brothers were all going to be iron workers, like my dad just follow him onto the iron. And that's what we were doing. But then my uh, older brother fell off a building and got uh, broken up uh, uh, quite a bit. Mm. And my mother said, uh, No more, my son's going to be iron workers, they're going to go to college. I didn't have much uh, interest, so I decided to go to art school, mm-hmm. which is like the easiest college to go to, you know. But anyway, <laughs> I went there in 1968 and arrived in Chicago, right during the middle of the largest police riot in North American history, Democratic National Convention of 1968. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when I see things going on here, I'm thinking that's nothing like mm-hmm. what it was in '68, where sure. the police and the National Guard were busting people in the head, later mm-hmm. shooting people. So. <clears throat> But that turned me on to say, why are people protesting? Mm-hmm. Why are people so angry? They're taking to the streets. Now back then, it were, truly was a big riot on all sides. Mm-hmm. You know, busting windows, or setting cars on fire, sure. and, and a lot of things—anarchy. Uh, <clears throat> and I was just a young man; I didn't quite understand. It. At the same time, there was a little native protest going on in the city of Chicago. A group were reoccupying this one piece of federal land, and wanting both to be recognized. To get our treaties recognized, and how do you want to say it, to change the way that Native people were being treated at that time. Now you got to remember, this 1968. Something clicked in my mind that said, I identify more with them in that little Native protest camp that I did with the uh, <clears throat> the hippies protesting uh, uh, the war in Vietnam. So it began to kindle a fire in me, and then. Um, my other brother got killed in a car wreck while going to the university, so get this, my parents try to send us to a safe place so don't get hurt on a job, and my brother gets killed in a car wreck. It forced me and my father, I think my whole family, to rethink who we are, what is life, and what are you going to do with the life that you have. My dad quit his uh, job as an iron worker and, of all things, became an artist. So I'm the one going to art school my dad just decides to become an artist. I, uh, I dropped out of art school, and I went back to uh, Buffalo, New York, where I was born, and I got a job at the Buffalo-Nurie County Historical Museum. And that kind of opened up a whole, not just a career, but a whole line of inquiry. Because what I began to realize is that my family didn't have a lot of knowledge of our history, and there wasn't a lot of old people I could turn to. But all of a sudden, here in this little building in Buffalo, were the records of our people You know, treaty records, a history, a language, a photograph, all kinds of things. So it's like a whole journey of self-discovery. Every time I find a new document, I begin to think about that, what happened to our people. And I can understand what's going on in the minds of a lot of our young people today, because when you begin to learn a history, it makes you very angry Mm. when you see what actually took place, the betrayals, both internal and external uh, the big rip-off, uh, you know, the, the, the killings of the war, the disease, all of that stuff. It's amazing that you and I are even sitting here today. Mm. It's really amazing. But it also tells us that somebody fought hard that you and I would be here today. And so that sparked something in me to want to learn more. So I began to uh, work with uh, seeking out traditional wow. elders, uh, other Native uh, educators, and just began to explore this question of who are we as the Haudenosaunee, uh, what are our rights, uh, what are our responsibilities, uh, what are we supposed to do? But I learned a good lesson early. I went out to the University of Buffalo. There was a gathering out there, and this was about 1971. Here was this long-haired guy on TV talking about, you know, Native things and uh, things I was eager to learn. So I went out there, and the room was just full of Native people. And that's where I met uh, John Mohawk, uh, Barry White, uh, Orrin Lyons, mm. the guys that I ended up teaching with at the University of Buffalo. So they they encouraged me to go back to school. And then that was a real awakening. Mm. Because you can imagine every week having these this intense discussions about our history and our, our situation. But the thing that those three men in particular were interested in was social act- action. Mm. Not just getting angry, not just protesting, but... So what are you going to do about it that helps to keep the culture going, mm-hmm. keep our, our nationality going? Too? What are you going to do to defend the principles that your ancestors fought to defend?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Along the way, though, we had to learn colonization did a whole lot of disrupting to our thinking and to our ability mm-hmm. to be us. So, mm-hmm. uh, Anyway, the university, you know, you're talking about the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. It was a hotbed for young natives to begin to gain a broader perspective on what happened to their people. And it was kind of like group therapy, but it was also a way of encouraging us to go do things. So it was action-oriented, get involved in the community. Getting a degree was less mm-hmm. less the issue, but, but banding together in this safe place to do that. And then learning from Puerto Rican studies and uh, the Puerto Rican national movement, uh, learning from African-American studies, uh, from women's studies. So we had a very, very unique blend of people who were providing a serious critique for what was wrong with American culture and how it impacted on the real lives of real people, and then to do something to change that. So I've been embarking on um, my life to try to do just that. I don't know how well I've done, but I keep I keep at it.
2: You mentioned Oren Lyons. Uh, he was involved with AIM, was he not?
3: Well, Oren is a, one of the few Haudenosaunee uh, leaders who was in the center of nearly all of the uh, protest uh, actions uh, back in the 60s and 70s. But we always maintain a position. The Haudenosaunee. We're not. We don't join organizations. So we don't. Our, our leaders. are our leaders. And and often we would go to investigate. Mm. So when he went to Wounded Knee in '73, it was a delegation of people who said, w- we want to find out what's going on here, and help uh, people get organized. I've been reflecting a lot about you know uh, uh, the the f- fifty years that I've uh, known him and the mm. things that we've done and what the Confederacy's accomplished, but also. Mm-hmm. All those threads left hanging mm. and that still needs some attention to them. Uh, but I learned a lot from uh, Oren and, uh, and, and John Mohawk as well in mm. terms of a, a way of thinking about things, a way of handling uh, these uh, matters. And uh, Orrin and I were in the middle of some very hotly uh, contested uh, moments in our history. And I uh, am a uh, pacifist, so I also believe that uh, like the peacemaker, that violence is not uh, the answer to our problems and that only by using this good-mindedness and building our internal strength, dare I say our spiritual strength, and then using that to connect to others, that's what will—that's that's the formula we've been given. So I've spent my adult life dancing around protests and blockades and confrontations, trying to figure out how do we maintain our Haudenosaunee dignity, and integrity, when faced with a uh, opposition that sometimes would rather see us dead, mm. so it's a it's a very difficult uh, juxtaposition to be in. Believe in peace on one hand and understand our history, which was also very violent, and then having to confront people who just don't seem to want to care whether we continue or not. So, when I was getting very torn between this polarity, uh, Oren uh, came to me and he said, "Well, Rick." He says, you've got to be careful, because you can let your anger, it'll destroy you. Mm. He said, and you can't do everything. So pick one thing out of all of the things to get done. He says, focus on that. And he says, other people will take care of everything else. Mm. So our meetings at the university were almost like uh, gatherings of young activists. We each had an assignment. The assignment that I took on was the recovery of our wampum belts that were mm. in museum collections back in the 70s. onondagas were protesting and, uh, and litigating, trying to recover these. And so I decided that's what I was going to make as my uh, my task. And uh, I'm happy to report now, uh, 50 years later, we probably recovered over 400 wampum belts and wampum strings and all of the documents attached to that and all the photos. But it does us no good to collect things back if we're not going to use them or if it's not going to help us understand ourselves better. So I've spent a lot of time trying to educate about what's the meaning of these uh, wampums, uh, what I've learned from the historic record, what I've learned from the old people who are no longer here, and I think what you'll actually learn from the wampum itself. If, if you think about maybe uh, 200 years ago, you and I are at this a treaty meeting, and there's a wampum belt going back and forth between the speakers. And just like this machine is recording our words, that wampum belt would, record, would capture what people say. And once the agreement was made, it would solidify it. And so subsequent generations could pick up that wampum belt, get in, get in tune with it, and and speak the same words that were spoken to that belt 100, 200 years earlier. That's an amazing... So it's not just oral history. It's just based upon your your memory. It's that we have these tools to access the thinking of our ancestors, but it's also... Their aspirations for us. And when you look at it, these 400 wampums, you get to see that our ancestors wanted us to be strong, to be healthy, to be vigilant, but also to be at peace. That, that's kind of like, that's the mandate. You, now, sometimes, like I say, it's very difficult to maintain that, uh, but you also have to learn a lot of racist thought, well, just it's just got to roll off your back, just like uh, water on a duck's back. You can't let name-calling or you can't let uh, police or uh, letters to the editor or, you know, just said all of this vile stuff mm-hmm. because that's intended to drag you down into the, the darkness. And just like a chief, when they say you got to make your skin seven layers thick, that applies mm-hmm. to all of us. Mm-hmm. You can't let... But we've become a very volatile people. You just scratch the surface, all this hatred comes out, all this anger, all this frustration. I understand it completely, Mm -hmm. but that's what will drag us back down. And then they have bigger boots to oppress us, bigger guns, bigger machines, bigger ways of keeping our people oppressed. So I had to learn, our liberation doesn't come from a white man telling us that we're liberated. It comes from us acting in a liberated way. that mm-hmm. liberated doesn't mean doing whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. It means we have a tradition, we have parameters to that, we have guidance from our ancestors, we have our great law, we have our, our way of doing things. And when you do that, it doesn't really matter what other people say or think or do, because you're remaining strong and true to your inheritance, and it gives you the strength to continue. And when we got to look at what's happening to our children, we have to think more clearly about what is the, not only the legacy we're really leaving for them, but we, we can no longer sacrifice our kids to systems that don't work. Child welfare, mm-hmm. schools, em, uh, employment, <coughs> universities. So I think we got to start thinking differently about what what kind of people do we want our young people to become and how do, when we arm them with the intellectual, the emotional, the the, the spiritual tools, not just the, uh, the, the gun or the, or the barricade. There's something else they have to have that can transcend all of that. Now, this doesn't mean we let the mainstream culture ride over us willy-nilly. Mm. I've had to learn that sometimes uh, an internal peace requires a vigorous defense. Mm. And that's what the Great Law was about, was maintaining the peace inside the Longhouse and mm. among our people, among our nation, keep our fires going. And when the outside, whether this is 400 years ago or uh, yesterday, want to destroy that fire or want to take our children want to destroy our homes, we have to find a way to defend ourselves. The question is, what is the best way to do that?
2: Mm, Right. just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in 106.5 ELMNT-FM or 95.7 ELMNT-FM and then listen on your device of choice. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And my guest with me, Here on Moment of Truth is Rick Hill. He is a Tuscarora from Six Nations. Of course, uh, Six Nations uh, spans both sides of the U.S. and Canada border. Rick spent a lot of time on the U.S. side, but also here uh, on the Six Nations side in Ontario. And uh, that's, of course, where I met him. I've known him for quite some time, and I sure hope you're enjoying what Rick has to say today. As I mentioned, I've known him a long time. He's a very knowledgeable man. And uh, Rick, I liked what you were saying earlier about wampum and how you were uh, you you were sort of trying to repatriate, learn uh, as much as you could about about the, the belts. Uh, now, but because of wampum being made out of shells uh, and and also uh, two simple colors, uh, you know that it has it almost has this this almost like a digital form of communication. Yeah, when you think about it. <clears throat>
3: There's a patterning to it. There's a patterning in every bead. There's a design to that. And our old people understood that so well. It was almost be like reading a book. Mm. This bead represents this idea, and this bead represents that idea. You string them together, put them together in a belt. or you know, It's not really a belt uh, to be worn. It's just this big document made out of beads. Some of them have 10,000 beads in them. Mm-hmm. So if we think about wampum having natural intelligence, Mm. the ability to remember, the Mm. ability to recall, the ability to remind us, but the good part of the inheritance of the wampum is that it also reminds us of some of the mistakes our ancestors made, some of the bad deals, some of the treaties they should never have signed. It's all recorded there for us to analyze. Mm. And wampum, how do you want to say it? It's not an editor of history. Mm. It doesn't only tell you one side of the story. Mm. It doesn't have um, uh, like, you have to think this way. It says, here's what it was. Mm. What do you think about this? Mm. That way, wampum remains uh, relevant to every generation. We have to think about that, we have, but we have to know it. Mm. And what happened is the wampum belts were taken away from both Grand River and uh, Onondaga over in New York for over 100 years. So imagine you had this great book that you read when you were a kid. And then I said, you lost the book. You know, you could remember the story. You kind of tell it to yourself in your head. Maybe your children are born, you can kind of tell them part of that story, and then your grandchildren are born. And then all of a sudden it's like, I can't remember the details mm-hmm. of the story. So the belt is keeps our, our knowledge of our history in order. So what I've tried to do is reassemble that order. The belts came in a certain order, there's hundreds and hundreds of treaty councils. It's very complex, and I'm not, like, I'm not saying like I have it all worked out. But you know, after working on it for 50 years, you get a sense of this is what what it was intended to do, and this is the message going. On, and then what are we, what are we going to learn from this stuff? And I think that's where I wish uh, I had worked with more fluent elders. Or I wish I had the questions I had now back then, so that I could ask these old people who grew up hearing the story, grew up immersed in that to help explain some of this stuff. So it's kind of like um, you're being a cultural detective. Mm. you got to go in and uncover what happened here, who were the good guys, who are the bad guys. But I've also learned not to be too judgmental about history. Mm. Like Joseph Brant, I'll take him as a good example. Oh, some people absolutely hate him. Mm. Others uh, absolutely love him. Mm. And I take a more in-between stance. There's some things he did that were horrible, the consequences lasted for generations, but he also was a, such a staunch defender of our right to be us. But because he also became a Catholic and advocated for, um, uh, for that we should all become missionized and change, it's, it's just like you and me. You don't want to be measured by the 10 bad things you've done. Or, excuse me, I know you've only done five <laughs> bad things, but you don't want to be measured by all of that. You want to look at the totality. So the uh, historian in me always says, what can we learn from this situation? and not to be judgmental, but what can we learn from that? So that, I think, has helped me a lot to maintain my sense of uh, uh, sanity, that our people faced horrific circumstances in the past, uh, worse than we've ever Mm. seen today. But they left not only a trail and a legacy, they left a lot of unresolved matters. Mm. Now, here we are, we've got to resolve these things. But you know, the same is true for the Canadians, uh, the Americans, uh, the British they're, whether we like it or not, they're a part of the resolution of whether we're going to live in peace or not. Mm. Uh, Despite what I said earlier, we can't just ignore them or just pretend they don't exist. The other thing that looking at Wampum uh, teaches you is that our people were never fearful about calling a meeting and said, look it, we got this intense matter, including murder. We have to resolve that. And they did it in such a peaceful, powerful way They're creating a lasting relationship. So I kind of believe that, too, that uh, how we negotiate the next step is very important to the future. You can't force morality on somebody. You can get them to capitulate or give up, but then it builds more resentment and hostility. And one thing we have to understand about uh, Euro-Canadians is that they have a long memory of hostility. And it keeps coming back, and it keeps coming up. Because when you think about it, they brought chaos to this land. Mm -hmm. They brought warfare to this land, guns and rum and and, uh, economic development. So all we're experiencing is is that the turmoil that was in England and Europe has been brought to our backyard. So it's not of our making. We got swept up in it. Uh, A lot of our people got uh, hurt through colonization. So we can't seek a solution based upon their traditions, their culture, their values mm. we have to look to our own mm. and but we have to understand what that is and right. so I've also spent most of my adult life trying to figure out what is it that we believe in what, what, is our, what are our traditions, what are our values mm. how do they work, but I've also had to always do that with an English thinking mind because I don't mm. speak Tuscarora I don't right. speak Mohawk and, and it's been both a blessing and a curse mm. because I can talk to these old guys and they try to explain it to me and then my job has been how do I interpret that to all of the other English-speaking Haudenosaunee mm. people? How do I help explain to them what these old men carried in their head and their heart and what the wapa belts carry at its core? Uh, I just become a modern-day translator of that right. and hope that I've gotten it right more times than not.
2: Uh, Rick, we're almost at a time, and uh, I'm just wondering, at the beginning of the conversation, uh, you mentioned about your time in the 60s that you had spent uh, with protests and directly involved with protests. And uh, I'm just wondering if you're encouraged at all by what uh, we're seeing now, uh, for instance, with the Wet'suwet'en and uh, how both the federal and provincial governments are speaking to the hereditary chiefs. And what they're saying is that they're, they will reach some kind of a, a, a resolution um, that will resolve this for uh, future matters. Uh, I'm just wondering what, what, what you think when you hear that. I
3: can show you a whole stack of such agreements that our people made with the British, uh, the French, the Dutch, and the Americans, that turned out to be worthless. Uh, I can also show you some that have uh, lingering possibilities. So I want to be hopeful to say, yes, we use the power of our good mind. We stand by our inherent uh, right to be us on our lands that were given to us by the Creator. And we have to negotiate a settlement on that. But I'm not sure the other side agrees that Somebody's word matters. Mm-hmm. That the honor of the crown really means something. And so words on paper uh, talk about a relationship rather than a legalistic document. So I think I understand the anger of our people to want to, uh, to want to protest, to want to disrupt, to want to say, not one more inch of land, not one more child, not one, not one, not one more women or do- daughters are murdered. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we try to draw these lines in the sand but maybe uh, we need to find a, another place to make that stand. In other words, maybe we need to make sure that our homes are so safe for women that our daughters don't need to run away and hmm. end up on the streets. Maybe we need to manage our own schools so our kids don't get conflicted about who they are and learn a colonized agenda. Hmm. You know, here in, in Ontario, The teachers, by law, are required to teach Christian Judeo values. Mm. That's their job. Mm. So what kind of people are we that we send our kids to the system and then expect them to be Haudenosaunee nationalists? It's just not going to work. So in other words, maybe it's a different kind of line we need to draw, saying we're going to be the indigenous people by the way we conduct ourselves, the way that we raise our our children, the way that we we treat our women, the way that we, we then develop a relationship with the earth. Because when you look at what's going on, you can get a hundred elected councils to sign on a dotted line, pipelines are okay, digging trees are okay, digging coal and oil is okay, because they want the cash. Sure. But it's harder to say, that's our mother. Mm-hmm. The more we destroy her, the less likely the future generations are gonna live in peace. Mm. So we got a big choice to be made, but I think the choice starts inside. Tecumseh's brother, he called him the open door when all of the hostilities were going on. He says, you want to start a revolution? Start a revolution on, in the inside. Take a look at yourself. What are you doing? He says, You're, we've become so colonized that we want everything the white man wants. We've got his clothes, you know, his systems, and we want all of that stuff, he says, but that's not going to do us any good. So he advocated making your native clothing, sleeping on the earth, eating your native foods, and not colonized foods, and restore your indigenous integrity. He says, that's the real revolution we want. Maybe that's what we really need.
2: Rick, I can't think of a better way for us to end our conversation, but it's been a real pleasure having you here with us uh, on the show. And I appreciate you taking the time to come in and uh, spend some time with us here on Moment of Truth at Element FM. So, uh, Nyawagoa.
3: Yeah, uh, thank you for inviting me.
2: Rick Hill is a member of the Tuscarora Nation from Six Nations and a historian. Been talking to him uh, quite a bit about uh, wampum belts today here on Element FM. And Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
0: Element. Element. Element FM.
2: Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And of course, anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 1065-ELMNT-FM, which is the Toronto location, or 957 E L M N T F M, which is our Ottawa location and sister station, and then you can listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, anywhere. As I say, right across the country. It's a pleasure to have with us here on the show, Dr. Vianne Timmons, and she is the newly appointed president and vice chancellor of the Memorial University of Newfoundland. Uh, so congratulations, Doctor.
1: Thank you, David.
2: However, you did leave uh, the University of Regina after 12 years uh, in that helm. Um, and uh, as president there, uh, the University of Regina, you, you did some impressive things and, and had some great achievements, I understand, like record student enrollment growth, as well as increased diversity of students and faculty and staff.
1: It was a great 12 years. Absolutely. We had yeah. a lot of good work together and uh, still faced a lot of challenges together also.
2: And I also see that you balanced the budget. Boy, the, the board must have been happy about that. <laughs> yeah.
1: 21 years of balanced wow. budget. So.
2: Wow, well, that's that's great. Uh, I I guess the uh, Memorial University is, is quite pleased to have you on board then.
1: Fingers crossed. I hope so.
2: <laughs> now, does this bring you back home? I mean, uh, you, you you part of your heritage is Migamow, I understand. Yes,
1: um, actually, Con River, which is in the south part, of the province um, Mm. is where my great-great-grandmother grew up with her seven brothers, uh, Marie-Thérèse Benoit. um, It does bring me back, and I also grew up in Labrador, so Mm. it it is wonderful to to be back.
2: Mm. Well congratulations once again. And of course, none of that which we've been talking about is what we're here to talk with you about today. It, we're here to talk about a new policy that I understand that the board uh, at Memorial has uh, ha- has brought into effect. Uh, that is, uh, it, it's on the research impacting Indigenous groups policy, and um, it has to do with basically, I guess, making sure that we get approval or you get approval from any of the researching that is being going going on uh, through the university. Uh, prior to with indigenous people?
1: It's a great policy and it was developed with our indigenous colleagues, both in in the island of Newfoundland and and Labrador, um, in the north, it extensive consultations, consultation. So it's a, I, I think it is a policy that others will emulate because it's so thoroughly developed.
2: Uh, can you take us back in? and I'm not sure how much of the history you, you know about this, but what, what can you tell us about how this got started and, and when?
1: Well this has been worked on for years um, mm. and, and it got started because, as we know for for, center, for generations, we've gone, uh, researchers have gone into indigenous communities um, and taken the knowledge in those communities as a given for them and and gone off and published papers and done work and the community's left with nothing. So -hmm. basically this policy is a really, really important one because it says there must be agreement in terms of research, but it's even more than that. There must be consultation as the research is being visioned, as a researcher is thinking about doing a project. So the consultation has to begin very early and um has to go throughout the whole research.
2: Yeah, which is of course a, a great idea. And as you pointed out um for for generations uh, research has have been going in uh, getting and researching and getting all kinds of information that they have then been back without uh, I guess giving credit first of all and 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 uh, and and publishing these things um, and uh, as you say indigenous communities indigenous people have been left uh, w- without um, any 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 real credit or or uh, uh, input um, on on how that might even be used in the future or how it might be shared etc you know, I, I can tell you a, a direct story on this, if you don't mind a little bit. About 10 years ago, um, I sat on what was called the Six Nations uh, um, Student Success Consortium. That had uh, That had... Um, was in partnership with the university of brock university in st Catharines, and you know i was very impressed because brock university at the time and this is a one-off so this is interesting so what the community and brock did is they worked out a very much similar kind of thing that you're talking about with any of the research that was going to be taking place what they said was any of the stuff that we develop has to go through the community. It has to be uh, uh, signed off on the community that it's okay to share. Other than that, it stays within the community, which I thought was quite something at the time. N- and I think this is what you're hoping that we're going to see more and more of and that universities on the whole will do this so that uh, this kind of, of, of recognition is, is appreciated right right off the top.
1: Yes. Um, it's so important. And and this consultation even goes beyond, um, you know, imagining the research and conducting the research. There needs to be agreement even on publishing and Mm. the use of the data um, after the research is concluded, which I I think is so important.
2: Yeah, for sure. Now, I understand quite a few people were involved, like over 2,000 people were involved uh, going The
1: consultation was extensive to develop this. And you know it and it, it but truly the the people who developed it listened carefully to communities and re- put in what they asked right into the policy
2: mm. and and what would you say is? um that you're hoping and that that you said you know you hope other universities will follow this for sure Uh, i'm wondering has there been any interest so far in in terms of just people uh picking up the phone or sending an email saying hey we'd like to know more about this
1: well look at you david you (laughs) called and said like (laughs) to know more about this so yes there has been in um, particular in other universities that, who are doing trying to do the same thing to look at guidelines that supports indigenous rights and, and sovereignty at all times right so that is, i mean i think that that's important
2: well, you know i guess there's another side to this of course isn't there and that is the backlash from uh uh either indigenous uh communities or or indigenous people uh You know, if if once this has been done, um, without that assurance and without that input, that uh, the the communities could come back and maybe hold up things by saying, "Oh, we're going to sue you," or "We're going to we you know we, you can't publish this," so you you know blah blah blah, all of these kind of things that could happen if this kind of an agreement and this kind of thing isn't done ahead of time.
1: Well, what what will happen is that you know this is now a university research policy, so if researchers run afoul or do not follow it after they've been well-educated because there's a Mm. big education component to this. Mm. Then there'll be uh, an ability to look at scholarly misconduct. The other thing though we've done for our faculty is that we have a single email that faculty can contact if they need help and we have staff that are you know with the Office of Research to help anyone in terms of interpretation and understanding uh, about Memorial's Indigenous you know research Uh, policy. So we're trying to provide a lot of support. There's central support for researchers looking at seeking best practices, advice, and guidance for creating ethical and impactful Indigenous research. So they'll help the researcher. and, And so there's a lot, a lot of training that we have created and that are being done over August and September.
2: Do you think that they're, uh, partly? this is partly going on in some ways because of the awareness that Truth and Reconciliation brought forward?
1: Oh, absolutely, David. I think um, people are not aware of the impact that the Truth and Reconciliation document has had in post-secondary world. There's not a university in the country that does not have a focus on indigenization, that has not looked at, you know, um, dedicated hiring that has looked at their policies through an indigenous lens like we have in terms of research um, it ha- it it has been transformational the truth and reconciliation now there's a long way to go and we see that with some universities and even when I was Regina you know many of our indigenous researchers because of the focus on truth and reconciliation their workloads increase dramatically they're shoulder tapped for every committee they're consulted for advice. So their workloads have increased dramatically and we have to find a way to kind of bring the pendulum back because, you know, nothing about us without us has been taken very seriously (laughs) in the post-secondary world.
2: Right. Right. Very true. Have you uh, had any um, um, direct feedback thus far um, from uh, Indigenous people, communities, students, uh, or uh, members in the, in the faculty at the university uh, about this process so far and, and what they're, how they are, they're um, seeing this?
1: Well, it had to go through our Senate, so there was mm-hmm. extensive discussion at the Senate level, mm-hmm. just trying to understand specifically um, about it. And it does make it more complicated to go into Indigenous communities sure. to do research. And you know, professors are trying to figure that out. Um, to have you know more steps to follow, to have that kind of consultation, it is a change in what has been done in the past. And I found that at Senate, and when I was chairing Senate, people really try. We're trying to understand, and I think that that's re- because they they don't want to run afoul of it. They want to do a very good job, and they want to respect uh, the indigenous autonomy, uh, indigenous governance. And they want to honor and, and even make up for past wrongs.
2: Mm, right, right. Understood. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in 106.5 or uh, 95.7 and E L M N T F M, And then listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That uh, might come in handy with uh, the guest we have on our show right now. Uh, We have with us the uh, newly appointed uh, President and Vice-Chancellor of the Memorial University of Newfoundland, Dr. Vianne Timmons, and she is here to talk to us and is talking to us about uh, a new policy that was approved by the board of regents at Memorial, and it has to do with uh, research impacting Indigenous groups' policies and how they go about doing that research, and and in fact, uh, making sure that uh, everything is. On board, you might say, prior to even launching any kind of a research uh, paper or or doing any kind of research with indigenous people, that make sure that everybody is on board, everyone in the indigenous community that might be impacted. I'm guessing also is aware and is on board and saying, yes, this is okay with us. We like the way you're doing this. This we're not. You're not doing anything that is it might be considered offensive or uh, uh, uh going against some of our traditional values etc i'm guessing uh dr Vian, that that is that's some of the things that might be looked at when you're you're doing this
1: absolutely um and honoring uh people's spirituality and traditional mm. values is is critical in terms of going in and working with research you know this um this research policy also uh pertains to graduate student research not just professors mm. And mm. also to um, classroom research. So if somebody has a project in a cl- in one of the courses that has to do with an indigenous community, they need to do consultation with the community. So it it's far reaching.
2: Hmm, that's that's a very interesting. I'm I'm guessing that there could be also the possibility of. I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, benefits uh, for I- Indigenous people or communities in terms of uh, if there is some kind of uh, ability for profit sharing that might come out of some research that might benefit or or go in that direction?
1: Absolutely. That will be critical um, as they go forward. So if there's any IP intellectual property, uh, that will have to be worked out and um, honor the Indigenous community and their knowledge before the research is moving forward and implemented. It is, uh, this this research policy is very far reaching. And it's, it, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we have a horrible history um, as academics and going into First Nations communities and, you know, doing research there. There's been a ton of research done uh, in our First Nations communities in Canada mm-hmm. and very little action out of it. So this is trying to, you know, set things right. So when someone goes into work in a, in a community, it has to be reciprocal. You have to leave something, you have to leave knowledge, you have to build capacity. You just don't walk in and take knowledge and walk away.
2: You know, as you were talking there, a couple of other words come to mind, uh, healing and trust, uh, both of those things. Uh, would be very important uh, moving forward. Uh, and, and perhaps this is one way of, of trying to build both trust and healing because of of past wrongs.
1: Well, it's very interesting, David, when I was doing research in Mi'kmaq communities in Atlantic Canada, and this is a, over a decade ago, I developed a family literacy program with community members. And I can remember one of my Mi'kmaq colleagues said to me, you know, Vianne, when people come into our community, we welcome them with trust and then we sit back and wait for them to break it. And that's a history that the Mi'kmaq people have, right? They they have, their trust has been broken so many times, but they are still open to partnerships and they still welcome you into their community. And you think about that after, you know, um, hundreds of years of trusts being broken, that they're still willing to partner and work with us.
2: What a powerful statement. Oh, yeah. I, I don't I don't think I've ever heard it put that way before, but that is so simple and so true. We welcome them with trust, and then we sit back and wait for them to break it. Yeah. Well, that's oh, wow. been
1: their history, right? Yeah, that's been no, it's true. The history true. of the Mi'kmaq people in Atlantic Canada for so long.
2: Well, I think right across the country.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> also, you know, when I worked in, in Saskatchewan, now I did... One of my pre-colleagues, when I shared that with them, said, well, we, uh, we don't welcome you with trust. We sit back and wait for you to earn it. So not every community approaches it the same way.
2: There's, a, there's been a bit of learning going on there. That yeah. sounds great. <laughs> um, what can you, as you look to the future, what are you what are you hoping for, for out of this?
1: Well, you know what, when I look to the future, part of the whole policies around education is, you know, is that we will have more scholars from communities, more researchers from communities who understand research or are able to conceptualize it, be able to partner with academic uh, uh, communities to do the research so that we see a reversal. Not that we have academics coming in and saying we're interested in researching this, but we have First Nations communities approaching academics and saying we have a research idea We know what methodology we want to use. We know what we want the outcome to be. Will you work with us? So Mm. I'm hoping we will get to a point that we will see as much of that kind of research happening as academics approaching First Nations communities.
2: You know, uh, I guess, again, as you were just talking about that, what comes to mind is the process. Uh, It will, of course, add time to the process. And, of course, time is money. Uh, so um, that just means that we have to look at these things differently, plan accordingly, and I guess funding dollars are going to have to be. Uh, it, it's going to it's going to affect, I guess, quite a few things, isn't it?
1: Well, David, you you've identified something really important. Community-based research always takes more time, and it mm-hmm. always costs money that people don't anticipate. So, with this policy, because consultation is is embedded in every aspect of it. There has to be funding to allow for that. And if you work in First Nations community, that doesn't mean you go in and you talk to one person. It means you bring community members together, you form a circle, you provide a meal, you sit around, you learn and talk together. Uh, So you're absolutely, your comment was brilliant. It requires a whole change, even in the agencies that fund research to help educate them so that they learn importance of consultation and that there is a cost to it that needs to be built into the research grant
2: yeah and how many times have we heard uh, what you just said about you know oh i made a phone call i consulted that's right Uh, (laughs) and it it
1: has to be face to face if if the community wants that which most communities i've worked with do and i will i I don't want to minimize the impact of sharing food together um with first nations communities it's critical as part of consultation is being able to sit together and share a meal. That's how trust is built in many of our communities.
2: Yeah, it's very true. And, you know, it wouldn't hurt for people to sit down and have a face to face and just relax and have a meal and and get to know each other a little bit, uh, you know, instead of instead of just this uh, very sort of business uh, time is money kind of approach to to things. Uh, if the benefit is is long lasting and can build that trust for because maybe it'll take more time to do this now. But think about once the trust and the healing has taken place, and that 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 people can actually say, yeah, you know, we came in, we did this once before, we'd like to come back, maybe they'll have to go through the process, but they'll everyone will know what the process is, first of all, and that'll probably save time and costs at a later date.
1: Do you know what else was interesting in developing this policy, David, is that all the indigenous groups that were consulted were well versed in research ethics. Mm. So the knowledge there's tremendous knowledge out there in the communities. It is they're very aware of uh, research ethics and what is required to do quality research in the community, and we learned a lot from from them themselves because they've been involved in research over the years.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. Vianne, uh, we're almost out of time. Just wondering if there's anything else that you feel is important that you'd like to mention about this.
1: Well, I think I want to go back to the whole comment you made earlier, David, about truth and reconciliation. Mm. You know, researchers and academics are prepared to to spend the money and take the time to do quality research with communities. Not for communities or two communities, mm. but with communities. Mm-hmm. And I think we're in a transformational time um, in terms of our history around respect and knowledge. Ten years ago, we you know we didn't do land acknowledgements. Ten years mm. ago, we didn't do the kind of consultation we do now. Ten years ago, we didn't talk about the history in residential schools. We've come a long way in a very short period of time, in the last decade, and I am so excited about how far we're gonna go in the next decade.
2: Well, uh, what a great way to finish off the conversation. Uh, it's uh, It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Well, in this virtual world, um, I hope <laughs> one day we can meet in person, but I wanna thank you also, David, for reaching out. And I would well, encourage people to go on Memorial's website if you wanna learn more, about uh, our research policy.
2: Sounds great. You know, uh, uh, I have not yet made it to the uh, to the East Coast as far as uh, Newfoundland, so that sounds like a, a you know an opportunity I might take you up on one day. And uh, and and if I get out there, I'll look you up.
1: Well, great, David. And it's not just Mi'kmaq people. We have Innu and Inuit people in Labrador. Oh, so
2: absolutely. we have uh,
1: you know a wide variety in terms of our communities and their needs.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, and congratulations not only on uh, your new position as uh, President and Vice Chancellor of Memorial University of Newfoundland, but also uh, on, on the new policy that has come out of Memorial uh, as well.
1: Perfect. Great meeting you virtually, David.
2: <laughs> Likewise. Take care.
1: Take care. Bye Bye-bye. bye.
2: Bye. That's Dr. Vianne Timmons, and she is, as I say, the uh, newly appointed president and vice chancellor of the Memorial University of Newfoundland. Uh, she uh, just left the University of Regina after 12 years. We've been talking to her about this new policy that they have brought in at Memorial, and that has to do with research impacting Indigenous groups. And uh, everything has to be upfront before they uh, even start to uh, look into the research. Somebody has an idea, they got to start getting... Uh, everything in place so that the indigenous community, indigenous population is up to speed on what is being going to be proposed. It's a great uh, idea and uh, they hope that that expands into other universities right across the country. That is this part of the program uh, but please don't go away and thank you for listening because we're going to have more right after this.
0: Now back to Moment of
2: Truth with David Moses.
0: Element. Element. Element FM.
2: Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to uh, welcome our next guest to the program. And it is uh, Renee DeSantis. Now, Renee maybe his name is familiar to you uh he is the person who actually uh, got the winning design for the toronto flag and um that was back in 1974 so we're going to update this i know but can you take us back to uh 1974 if you can tell us about how you got involved and why you got involved and how you ended up designing the flag
0: okay 1974 i was an art student at george brown and um when I was uh, doing an art display in front of Nathan Phillips Square, I looked at the architecture of a City Hall. And if you look at the architecture of City Hall, you'll see two wings, one smaller and one larger. Um, and then you see the dome in the middle and you see a blue black, uh, background. Knowing graphics, I took the two wings that I formed the T for Toronto. I took the blue background as a sky and made it blue. And I took the dome, where all the important decisions for Canada and Toronto are made, and I put the maple leaf in there. So if you look at it, it's very striking and very graphic. And um, uh, even if uh, council moves from the the architecture, you still have tea for Toronto, and you Mm. still have the leaf for the dome.
2: And I believe that that helped you uh, uh, in your design world. So in
0: 1999, I guess when the city amalgamated uh, they had another competition, and uh, what happened then was they had all the professionals uh, now competing, and uh, one of the counselors basically said, we see nothing that's better than our original design, so then they put it up to councils to vote. That day, there was an audience, and then they took it to council, and then they had the audience um, sort of vote for it, and they they decided to stay. With the original
2: flag for the city of Toronto. Now, both times, the, the, this was a competition, um, and the second time that you just mentioned is a, uh, it was a, a three thousand dollar honorarium. Exactly. Does that mean that does that mean that you won that honorarium again?
0: Yes, I did. I did accept. <laughs>
2: <That's-> <laughs> Congratulations! That's great, and and really, uh, it, it stands up to the the work that you did in the original uh, design. If no one saw anything better in in any of the other, uh, I guess it was about one hundred and sixty design submissions that came in.
0: As a matter of fact, I was uh, quite surprised because I didn't compete again with another design, so I just submitted the original. Yep. And uh, I was I was very surprised, but I was also honored.
2: Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Can you tell us, uh, from your own knowledge and what you know, I, you may not have all the answers I understand on this, when you say that they want to promote the flag more, uh, why do they feel that's important at this time? And also, just in general, that, that the flag needs more promotion and, and what it would stand for? I think if,
0: uh, for any country, any city, a flag is, uh, is very important. And Right now, the city has basically an outline of city hall as a motif and it has Toronto. And I think it has to be unified. I think what's flying on top and what's flying on the schools and some of these uh, government buildings has to be more unified between the brand, the, uh, the the flag, and the strategy has to be combined as one, like the Canadian flag. You don't see an outline of uh, of the parliament buildings, and then you see the, the Canadian flag, and then you see something else with Canada. It's all unified. So I'm trying to push to get the whole thing unified um with the flag being the main symbol
2: mm. and uh so how does that tie in with the song
0: well i love the city and um i just des- like i said i designed a flag for the city of toronto and i have a passion for the city and i wanted another big pro- project i'm in the marketing business at montana steel and um i wanted to come up with a song for the city i want to come up with an inspiration to song, which is storytelling about a great city. Toronto is an international city. It has a beautiful skyline. It's got great neighborhoods, architectural uh, design. It has world-famous parades and festivals, and, of course, our sports victories. And I think it needs a song for the tourism that comes in and something that is uplifting for the city. So I came
2: up with a song. So can you tell me more about what the song says, what its song does? What what do you, what do you want this song to do for the city?
0: Toronto is known as a six. So we try to come up with six words, and we couldn't come up with the other three. So feel the love, love the feeling. Those are our six words. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it really conjures up good emotions on feel the love. And if you look at Toronto with TO and Toronto, it just rhymes nicely. The harmony is there. We went out and uh, we did an audition to find the best Canadian talents for our song, and that's where we discovered some of the music and the talent they have in the city. So everything is Canadian. Everything is targeted with Toronto. Uh, with their, you know, we got over fifty or hundred neighborhoods, and uh, I want to spread the love in all our neighborhoods
2: right now with the song. Nice. Well, thank you very much for saying that. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us on uh, Element FM here. And uh, again, uh, Renee, congratulations to you uh, for both your design of the flag for Toronto and also for the song. Uh, Feel the love that, uh, as I said, we're going to play that uh, going out of the show today. So thank you once again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, And that is Rene DeSantis. He is the designer of the Toronto flag and uh, that w- was uh, uh, actually back in 1974 when he first entered the competition and then that was uh, also the flag chosen again in 1999, uh, going up some other uh, some other designs which didn't win and uh, now is the official flag of Toronto. Plus, uh, he has come out uh, with this new song, uh, Feel the Love, that is tied in with the city. He wants the whole city to uh, feel that love as, as you mentioned and we're listening to that right now as we uh, leave the show. Thank you once again for for listening to us every day right here on element fm in toronto and ottawa we'll see you next time right here on moment of truth i'm your host david moses this has been moment of truth with david moses element
0: element Element fm